Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the early edition Hammer Glosses. I'm your host Mike Swaridge and joining us today are Michael Chidister and Kendra Brown. How are we doing? Um, we've got a small, cra- small crew today. Yeah, season two. <laughs> so the, the plan for season two is that we're going to take a look at one of the the other other early gloss ms three two two seven a polar house book dobringer pseudo dobringer whatever we want to call it which we'll discuss later and we're going to do it as a series of shorter episodes rather than having a, a big panel discussion just a a few key people each time and this is mostly just for for logistics reasons and because we don't i don't want to spend three hours at six o'clock in the morning every saturday recording sorry guys so you were so good at it before yeah i know i know i've almost caught up on the sleep from that year (laughs) so so mike i I think this is a good opening question what shall we call the book that this podcast is about right well as as you know there's a lot of different names that go around uh for a long time people just called it dobringer which is not a great name for it um, because it's named after um, Hans or Hanko Dobringer, who was a person mentioned in connection with one of the sections of this book. And people have mistakenly thought he was an author because people are sloppy when they about such things. Uh, essentially, there's a, there's a page where whoever wrote this book forgot his name and then wrote it in the margin. And people saw that and said, oh, the author must have been writing his name in the margin, because that totally makes sense, as a thing people ever do. Um, and based on that, for like 20 years in HEMA, people thought that it was Dobringer was the sole author of all of this. Although, as Jeffrey Fording pointed out, as seeing as how someone, he, someone forgot to write his name in the book in the first place, if there's anyone in the world who could say he didn't write it, it's probably Hema Dobringer. Um, um, this, so, this isn't uh, kind of like an isolated occasion, is it? It was the same with uh, the Danzig gloss, where which got right. after a different section in a book. Yeah, in that case, it was because it uh, the last section is written by Peter von Danzig, and like people said, oh, clearly he's the author, and he put his own book last because of humility, I guess? Question mark. Yeah. And based on that, for. A long time everyone just called Danzig, which Christian Tobler and, and Diopagadorn have recently tried to argue is still the most correct name. I don't buy it. I don't call it that. Um, but also because of that, people assumed that everything in that book that didn't have an author attributed was written by Peter von Danzig. Cool. So we don't know who wrote this book. Um, and for that reason, sometimes it's called the Nuremberg House Book which is named after basically the city where it currently is located um, at the German National Museum. And it's also been called the Paul House Book after the first known owner, who is uh, Nicholas Paul. Um, Either one of those used to work. What's that? MS32278 is basically just the the catalog entry for it, isn't it? Yeah. That's the call number at the German National Museum. People seem more content to use that one than they do most manuscript call numbers. That one in, in 133 seemed to get the most common usage. But yeah, there's not really a great name for it. I usually stick with Paul um, or 3227A. Cool. I think at this point, there's so many names that no matter which one you choose, people aren't maybe not are going to quite know what you're talking about, which is, you know, an ideal situation <laughs> in terms of nomenclature. We'll come out with a new standard. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've renamed Switch in our article at least twice, and both times some people have switched and some haven't, so I'm personally responsible maybe for a lot of the confusion. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, so you mentioned that it's in Nuremberg, in the, yeah. the German National Museum. So that's, that's where I'm going to put my foot in it with the geography. That's in Bavaria, isn't it? I believe it is. So, and 
as a... I can point you on the map of Germany, but I don't know where all the German states are, so... Uh, <laughs> Southern Germany. Uh, Albert yeah. Dürer lived there. Um, Paulus Kell was hired by the city, wasn't he? Talhoff was uh, yeah, hired I mean, by the city. Really, Nuremberg is a, is a nexus point for a whole lot of the early Lichtenauer tradition. Because uh, so Hans Talhofer was worked there, Paulus Kahl lived there, um, Hans Lichtenauer lived there. There is a a fort of, of that was owned by Nuremberg that's outside the city is called Lichtenau. And one of the most likely locations where Lichtenauer came from, um, Peter von Danzig lived in Ingolstadt, which is like an hour south of Nuremberg. And when you start plotting a lot of these guys on the map. Um, yeah, it's the middle. It, it, it all is... There's a whole lot of map points that show up right in the vicinity of this city. Like, this was a major fencing hub in terms of southern German fencing culture. And we know that from secondary records. That there were... Uh, so, in a paper that was written by, I want to say, Paul Becker for the Talhaber Companion volume, he has he, he quotes from letters of people being specifically sent to Nuremberg to get the best fencing lessons. Yeah. Um, so it's just a, a place where a lot of sport fencing, if you will, was happening. And a lot of Lichtenauer masters either passed through there or settled down there. Cool. And you mentioned that the the earliest owner of the book that we have is Nicholas Pohl. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of famous in his own right, wasn't he? I don't know a lot about him off the top of my head. I think he worked for Maximilian, didn't he? Or was attached yeah. to Maximilian's court? This is Emperor Maximilian the First. Yeah. Um. But he wrote his name in the book in was it fourteen ninety four something like that? Yeah. Um, which is when we so we know that it must have been written by then. Well, not necessarily. So that that. So the thing about Nicholas Paul is he wrote Nicholas Paul 1494 in all of his books because he he got his doctorate in 1494. Ah. So he writes Dr. Nicholas Paul, and, and the doctor then would be dated 1494. Okay. So, so he could have acquired it later in life um, and still written that in there. But, yeah, it, it is certainly a 15th century document. Well, we can come to that in a minute maybe. Um, but he was certainly active at the around the turn of the 16th century, and that is when he owned the book. Cool. Um, and what's the book like? Is it a big, impressive uh, display book? Oh, no, it's a tiny, crappy little manuscript. It is, I have the measurements here, it is 100 by 140 millimeters, which is 4 by 5.5 inches, roughly. So it is a tiny pocket-sized manuscript that would fit in one hand easily. I don't think anyone has yet managed to publish a translation of it that's as small as the manuscript itself because people don't, no one prints books that small anymore. Um, yeah. In the in the book that I published, the translation I published, I put scans of the original size and they fill up less than half of the. Uh, of the book page it just it's a tiny tiny little manuscript yeah um so it's almost like a notebook yeah and in fact the the damage to the pages suggests that it wasn't even bound as a book initially that first you know started off its life as just being little tiny booklets of papers that were being carried around and, and beat up and then later on someone put it into a book so Early in its in its career was probably just literally someone's little notebook or someone's little like um, notes in their pocket. But then later on, they decided to put a hardcover on so it would stop getting trashed. Cool. And and what kind of of notes were they making? Swords, obviously. But what else is in there? Uh, it is a. Uh, it's got all kinds of stuff. It's. So the first uh, third or so is devoted to mostly fencing teachings, although this other stuff mixed in as well. Um, the rest of it has 
different kinds of magical formula. It's got alchemical um, recipes, medicine, medicinal recipes. It's got some astrology in there. <laughs> There's a whole treatise on uh, medicine for horses. There's a treatise on fireworks. It's a, it's a miscellaneous text, more or less. Um, apparently, a scribe was just putting into it whatever they thought would be most interesting to buyers. It is all written by a single pen um, and probably a professional scribe. So it's not like there was some rich guy who was scribbling down things in it whenever he had ideas. It was very much constructed to be a miscellaneous compilation. Um, and mostly covers sort of vaguely esoteric subjects. Cool. Yeah, so... So you think it wasn't somebody's personal notebook so much as um, a scrapbook of content to later be sold on? That is... So that's a tricky question, to be honest. <laughs> um, okay. It's very much a different call, isn't it? We, we can get into this right now. Why not? The, so there's, there's basically two competing theories about this. Um, Eric Burkhardt and, and Andre Vodica both published um, academic papers in the last five years discussing the origins of this manuscript and sort of rewrote everything that had been said about it previously. So there were a lot of theories in the sort of early 21st century um, about where, what this manuscript was and where it came from, and they rewrote the, that, that whole concept uh, between the two of them. Eric Burkhardt in about 2016, I think it was, um, argues that it was someone's personal notebook, but that they were very much sort of um, setting out to establish a treatise, not so much writing down random notes here and there. Um, and Andre disagrees, and he, and he, based on his textual analysis, says that there's no way this was written by the same person who composed it, and he thinks that it was a professional scribe who was receiving dictation from whoever the original author was. That, but in either case, what happens after the... So uh, so Andres is particularly interesting because there's a whole lot of stuff that doesn't make sense if you're going to be writing a fencing treatise in this, obviously. like you know, There's no reason to, to put in magical recipes and so on yeah. into your fencing book, but especially to put them in before you finished your fencing book. And, in and the because mid, all in the, the fencing teachings, what's that? And in the middle between all the fencing bits, you have a random... Right, right. So the, the fencing parts were never finished. And we can talk, if you want, about sort of the order of creation of a lot of this. But the bottom line is, it's like half done. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of blank space that was left for it to be completed. And then there's a whole bunch of magic stuff that's inserted around that and other esoterica. So... The idea that somebody was very carefully writing out this whole complex fencing treatise and then sort of gave up in the middle and wrote down magic instead, it requires a whole lot of assumption and doesn't really create a convincing story. Whereas the idea that someone was dictating their fencing teachings and then never finished and the scribe was like, oh, well, what do I do with this book now? And wrote some other stuff that they thought was kind of similar and might interest in the same people. Uh, makes more sense to me. Uh, but in either case, uh, it was written by... A, the defensing parts were written by a single author or created by a single author and written by a single person. And that may or may not be the same person. So, sorry, come again, so... <laughs> so was... there was only one fencing author for yeah. the for the gloss part that we're, that we're most interested in. Like, and there's only one consistent. there's only one scribe for the entire manuscript. It's all one yeah. hand. Okay. Uh, yes. And actually, now that I say that, there might be a second hand that's much that's in like the last quarter of it. I'd have to go and look at the scans again. I'm not 100 percent confident in that. Mm -hmm. But certainly, all the stuff that's the entire fencing treatise and the stuff written around it. Um, in that part of the manuscript is all in a single hand. Yeah. Um, and that is a, that is a, a fairly educated, maybe semi-professional hand. He's not a great scribe. He's not doing super fancy script, but it certainly is somebody who knows the ins and outs of writing manuscripts. 
And that may or may not be the, uh, the same as the fencer who created the teachings. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, so the the text as you read through it definitely shows evidence of not what can I say not being copied directly from a, a another text. There's bits where um, there's plenty of words that are being crossed out. Uh, bits where there's confusion between lefts and rights that have been edited, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's some of that. There's also homophone correction, which is one of the reasons why Andre thinks that it's a uh, a dictation situation, because there's places where somebody wrote a word and then scribbled it out and wrote a different word that sounds kind of the same, um, like they were misunderstanding and being fixed. Yeah. So that's not the kind of errors that you see in somebody who's writing down their own thoughts. They don't make those sorts of mistakes. So it's 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 full of errors, but they're mostly the kind of errors you would expect to see from somebody who's writing down words that were being spoken. Yeah. Cool. Um, but it is sort of a sloppy text, and it's also a text where the the author, whoever he was went back and made his own revisions to it as he was going along. So you see in a lot of places things that were added into margins, and it's not that this is a scribal error, it's that apparently the author realized he forgot something and went back and added it in, or thought that something wasn't explained well enough and added more explanation. And you see a lot of those sorts of insertions as well. Or, you know, they have extra verses they want to add into the title, and so they put those in the margin. Hmm. Uh, it certainly it was not written straight through and it definitely this is not what it would look like if it was being copied straight through yeah yeah it shows a lot of signs of being worked on and that work was never completed so not only does it have the best sword and buckler source in the universe yeah but the the main body of the long sword just doesn't have stuff yeah so there's and because there's evidence that the that the author went back and added or you know revised his own content the part the sections that do have stuff may still be incomplete and there's no way to know how much more might have been intended for some of those sections so like we know in the general instructions he goes back and he inserts an extra two pages into the middle of that section so he can add more notes on a particular part. Like, he's expanding it as he goes. And the stuff that got written down later on in, the, in, the, in his gloss, we have no idea if he might have wanted to expand those as well. All we have is... We also don't know why he went back and expanded parts that he already finished before finishing the parts that he didn't start. So there's some questions about his actual priorities when he was writing this down and, and why he did what he did. But in the general lesson is where you see the most evidence of him going and, and sort of reviewing the same content a couple times. Uh, because of how many marginal additions there are, there's, like I said, he took a, a folded sheet of paper, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of four page sides that are folded in half in the middle. And that's actually then sewn into the middle of a larger gathering of pages. Um, just so he could expand more on his four schlag and not schlag situation, and so he has he has a whole lot of extra stuff he adds in there, and then you go to like the Scheidelhau, and he has the whole verse written down and three blank pages set aside and no <laughs> words on them. So he he clearly planned out that he was going to have a lot to say there, and I didn't say any of it. And that's a, a common situation, especially when you get into the Hauptstücke. There's several places like that. Yeah, I I think we need to hold off on <laughs> on the kind of like oh, how would you put it like the the preferences of the author and the kind of system that he's building for another episode for sure. Sure, yeah, yeah sure. But this this sort of gives us a, a hint of what the process is where we have the title written out on certain pages. He, he'll record, he, he always records the entire 
title of a particular under a particular subheading, right? So the whole Scheidelhau, the whole Krumpau, and then he seems to have sectioned out how long he thought his description would be for each one of those, yeah. and left those pages blank before jumping to the next one because this is all written in these booklets, right? Uh, so. Uh, to, to give a 30-second description of how manuscripts are built, for people, most of you might not be aware, it's not sheets of paper like printer paper. These are sheets that were all folded in half and then nested together. And a medieval book would usually have four to six sheets. So when you fold it in half, you get eight um, to 12 half sheets, and you write on both sides of them, right? So those were already pieced together when this writing started. This was already a little tiny notebook with however many eight or ten pages in it and he was skipping pages to decide to leave space for it there was no way to go back and add and when he went back and added new pages to make more space for his writing it's really obvious so he clearly had a plan and thought this is how long my description of the shield how will be this is how long my description of the crimp how will be and so on and then he went back and started adding in glosses um, which is what you'd expect uh, on those blank pages. And then after that, for reasons we don't understand, before he finished his glosses, he went back and revised some of the ones he'd already written. And then he stopped and never finished. And that's sort of the best we can put together of how his writing process worked. And the same thing happened in the other short sections where he wrote down like a paragraph introduction for each of the other weapons and then left a bunch of blank space. And he only filled in the wrestling and I think the dagger or the messer and the, the left a whole bunch of blank space. And the sword and buckler, he wrote down, you know, the first thing to know about sword and buckler is, don't, don't and then never filled in the rest of the blank space. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, throughout this whole section, we can see the beginnings of, of ideas he was going to write down, and then just a whole bunch of blank pages after that where he never got around to writing them. And the other interesting thing is when the scribe went afterwards and started filling in all this magical stuff, he doesn't touch the blank pages that are dedicated to each one of these sections of sail. Um, he fills in before and after, and he fills in between the different major um, treatises, right? Mm. So in between the long sword and the other weapons, he fills in some stuff. But he leaves the pages after the settle blank as though he sort of expected they would get finished eventually, and they never did. Um, and we don't know why that would be either, but it could be that the author, you know, ran out of money or suddenly died. Well, probably didn't suddenly die, but suddenly moved away. Um, A more interesting project came up. Right. Or uh, T. Q., who's not on this call right now, likes to claim that clearly he got fired from his fencing classes and so he wasn't learning anything else. That <laughs> um, I guess that's possible. I don't think it's really that plausible, but maybe he only took a few like an hour lessons and then never got around to finishing the curriculum. Uh, but whatever happened, he stopped in the middle of his gloss and never came back to it. Yeah. And... So, the structure of the fencing bits of the book is there's kind of like a some fencing advice, then it uh, Lichtenhauer's Zettel and a gloss that's partly finished, or a version mm -hmm. of Lichtenhauer's Zettel because he's got extra stuff added in there, and then the other masters section. I think it's worth saying mm -hmm. a little bit about that. So, right. So. Um... This is the section that was written by actual Hans Dobringer. And others. He, uh, and others, right? There's Andres Juden, which is Andre the Jew, um, Jops von der Niesen, and Nicholas Prusen. And these four guys are credited with this section of Longsword teachings that is not unique to this manuscript. It's the only part of it that appears anywhere else, and it, it appears in the Glasgow Effects book in 1508. Yeah, um, alongside Ringick, the illustration. Yeah. And it, it, it's a, sort of a brief description that's mostly about fighting from Iron Gate, 
and it has a long poem that's sort of like a tale, like Lichtenauer's tale, but it's all unique, and it's about mostly about Iron Gate. And then it has some sort of combination strikes you can do uh, with names like Adas Tonga, right? The the Adder's Tongue and the Krautahaka, the Urbho. The Peacock, the Master Craft. Yeah. Yeah. Fogelzagel is the Peacock's Tale. Um, and it has the funny names for the, the various sort of combination strikes that it teaches. And the... It's only got like 12 specific plays after the first part. So it's fairly short and use it has some phrases in common with the longsword gloss, which is why Christian Trostblair firmly believes that one of those guys, and he and he assumes that it's Dobringer for reasons that I don't think are supportable, um, one of those guys might have been the glossator um, who wrote the gloss because there are some turns of phrase that appear in both. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think there's a way to prove it, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to fix it on Dobringer as the particular one who it must have been, though. It could just easily have been Andre the Jew or the other two guys. And uh, Acut in Sword Science and Society looks at um, the names involved in this manuscript or in the mm-hmm. section of the manuscript, and tries to tie it up to North Germany, to the area around Danzig. Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that I need to give more time I, I, to. He does, and I don't quite remember what his conclusions are on that. I didn't brush up on that before this call. Yep. Uh, but we know where Dobringen is... Um, we know where, what, uh, so Nisan, I believe, is a river. Prussian means Prussian. Prussian. Um, we can sort of localize some of these guys. There's a theory that Andres Juden is the same guy as Andre Lignitzer, um, since Lignitzer is an attested Jewish surname. I don't think it holds water. I mean, there's a lot of people from Lignitz in uh, Czech Republic, and not all of them are Jewish, but some of them are. So looking for similar names like that, I think, is a waste of time. But um, these are mostly place names. I think that there is a a uh, monastery in Dobringen where Akut um, wants to place Hans Dobringer. Yeah. Um, um, but, but it's it's what's the word? It's not the str- strongest evidence. No, and that's the problem with doing any kind of name research in, in this for defensing world is there's so many, like, just trying to find a person with a, a specific name, especially when the first name is Hans, is basically impossible. So the best you can do is try to narrow down your search to places where you think it's most likely and then narrow down to a few candidates there. So I think a lot of what Ankit does is trying to figure out where the sort of nexus points are, where there's a whole lot of fencers, and then specifically look at those guys for any for any uh, similarities. But even so, like, you, you, well, we don't even know when this manuscript was made. You're looking at, like, a whole century of people across all of Central Europe. And it's really hard to point to just one and say this is the most likely candidate. And that's something we sort of glossed over. We have no idea when this manuscript comes from. Yeah, I think we should pivot into that conversation. So, it's got a calendar in it, doesn't it? This book? It does. Well, sort of. It doesn't have anything that we would recognize as a calendar, but it has a list of dates. Um, So, it's a... Timeline. Sort of liturgical calendar. It lists the interval between... um, I know what this is. Uh, I wrote down here. The interval between Epiphany and Ash Wednesday every year from 1390 to 1495. Uh, so um, this is, Ash Wednesday is to do with Pancake Day. I can remember that much. And Epiphany is the 6th of January. It's traditionally the day when the um, three kings visit baby Jesus. And in some Christian countries, it's the present day instead of Christmas or St. Nicholas's Day. Um, but... 
that that interval is will tell you because there's specific sermons you give on those two days, and then the idea is that tells you how many Sundays there are in between. So you, that's how many sermons you have to fit in Before between you get into just doing the Lent stuff. Yeah, between the end of Christmas and the beginning of Lent, that it tells you how many weeks there are for you to plan for. Um, so that's a useful thing for a priest. Um, not for anyone else. Not really for anybody else. And it's not really a calendar. It's a, a list of years with a number after each one. Um, but based on that, the sort of 20th century HEMA assumption is clearly this manuscript comes from 1389, and they put all the future years on this page. Because the first year uh, in the list is 1390. Uh, so anybody who repeats the 1389 date, but I know it or not, is basing it on that assumption, which I think is kind of flimsy. I mean, <laughs> the, the flip side is why would somebody write this down for the past? Could, or could they have been copying it out of another book somewhere? Or... Yeah, the alternative is that it's being copied from a source, and the scribe is just like, shrug, this is useful, and puts it in there. I mean, you could say this is more evidence that Hans Dobringer actually owned this book, maybe. If he, if he could have been the priest who wanted this calendar, who knows? But a lot of this stuff in, in this manuscript was copied from existing sources, right? The very first thing is Liber Ignium, which is a famous um, fireworks book that has gunpowder recipes and stuff in it. And that's all over the place in the end of the 14th and beginning of the 15th century. There's um, Rosar's new book, which is a, a book of horse medicine that was copied from other, other source. Like, there's a lot of stuff in here that was just sort of mindlessly copied by the scribe on the theory that it would be useful to whoever bought the book. Probably. And this could be one of those. So it could be any time... So when scribes would copy things, they weren't necessarily concerned with making as updated as possible. So there's plenty of examples of calendars that get copied without the past being chopped off. So if this was written in like 1410, they might just find this calendar and say, eh, it's still got 85 years to go, it's fine, and write it in there. Um, and not worry about removing the 20 years that had already elapsed, because that's just more work. It's much easier to slavishly copy something than to try and edit it to be more relevant. That's just sort of part of the culture. And no one really cared that much, so they didn't have any reason to try and pin it down. Um, so if, if we look at the internal evidence of the manuscript, besides the calendar, this is a, a sort of a script that's, it could conceivably be late 14th century, but it could just as easily be early 15th century. It, it's very and different that, to like the hand in the Fiore books. Admittedly, that's from the area around Venice. This is from, yeah, and this is from probably Nuremberg area. Yeah, and there's no reason to believe that it moved that far. But I, uh, I mean, the, the handwriting is very different. Yeah, it, it is. But the other thing, the, the, the problem with handwriting analysis is that these things didn't all sort of move forward as a unit. It's not like uh, it's not like today when the whole world kind of stays in step culture-wise. Yeah. Um, and even that's not entirely true today, but it's more true than it ever has been. Instead, you know, this is a scribery is a craft that you would learn from a master and you would practice. And so, if you have an old scribe who trains a young scribe, then that young scribe is not having the most up-to-date, trendy handwriting. He has the old scribe's handwriting it be modified by more recent books that he's seen. And then when he becomes an old scribe, he's probably still writing the same way as he did when he was a kid. So we can date these hand, this handwriting to a particular, you know, part of a century, and then you have to acknowledge, you know, plus or minus a generation before or after that yeah. because of just how the craft worked and, how, and the people who were doing it. Which is why we can say, yeah, this is right for the 14th century, for 1389, but it's also right for 1425. It's not yeah. it, it's not datable that precisely, which is unfortunate because Isn't, that would be a huge help if it was. And the language, likewise, is about the right for the turn of the 15th century, but it could also be late 14th or early 15th. In both cases, we have like a 50-year window yeah. that is all equally plausible. Isn't there also... 
uh, watermark evidence? There is not watermark. So there's one partial watermark that Andre found. Um, Eric Burkhardt says there's no watermarks at all, and it's not a useful watermark. So the paper. So if there were watermarks, they were either chopped off or they're buried so deep in the binding that they just don't show up on you without unbinding the manuscript. And it was common when possible to try and hide watermarks that way. Yep. So yeah, we can't look at that date's paper. We don't know. I've, I've heard papers... um, Harry Harry Ridgeway say that mm -hmm. the the format of it with just one big block of text on each page looks yeah. like a later style. So we're talking like 1410s, 1420s or whatever. Does that ring true for you? I would buy that. Um, uh, that reminds me of something that I didn't prepare for. Uh, I have another manuscript that I found um, that has a very similar layout and handwriting, and I don't remember what the dating on it was. But it, it's... I would say that the, the formatting is another example of could be from the end of the 14th century. So the, the late 14th century, we see a big sort of revolution in manuscript production. And we don't see a similar revolution in the 15th century. So there's sort of big changes to the way manuscripts work that happens. And then things sort of drift and evolve slowly from there, is my understanding. So it's hard to... <clears throat> It's hard to pin things down more than that. Oh, here it is. It's a, uh, it's a manuscript that's in Munich that could be the same scribe um, to my eye. It's about the same size and similar handwriting. And it's dated to circa 1400. <laughs> um, so no help. But it has. it's interesting because it has another copy of a really obscure, it has the only other copy that I know of, of this, of a really obscure section in what 327A, which is, how um, recipes for tempering iron in different ways for different kinds of tools, uh, right? Where you can quench it and piss and you can, you know, use herbs and blood and stuff to make special treatments for steel. And that was, and people have usually thought that was unique for this, but it is in one other manuscript, which is the, the one I just mentioned. Oh, okay. <laughs> it also has the same handwriting and format. Cool. But it's not particularly helpful because yeah, it just it's dated to a century. And but yeah, so I, I'm with Harry in terms of date. I would put this in the first quarter of the 15th century, <clears throat> maybe the second, maybe the second quarter, but certainly the first half of the 15th century. I think all the the evidence that I can recognize sort of leads to that conclusion, and I would say very unlikely to be 14th century. Yeah, I'm I'm agreed on that just based on its relation, well, the other Lichtenhauer texts and its relationship with them. Yeah, and that's a big one. And I don't know if we're going to talk about contents at all on this one. I think that's for the next episode. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's maybe one or two pieces of evidence that suggests that this is contemporary to the other Lichtenhauer glasses. So whatever the earliest we want to put the RDL tradition that's the that's also the earliest that I would put this, which I think is also incredibly like fourteen twenties thirties. Yeah, uh, I think there's the Berin. I don't know how you pronounce that word, Beringwa, Bering. Uh, yeah, I just say Beringer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, would otherwise be the earliest occurrence of the of the Zettel. And yeah, that's fourteen twenty ish ish. Yep. And Talhoffer, the earliest mention of Lichtenauer would be Talhoffer, 1443, if we ignore this book. Um, 14, 1440s for Talhoffer. So, yeah, putting putting Lichtenauer's lifetime for his career, 1420s plus or minus 10 or 20 years, so seems to make the most... I, I think we talked about this at the very beginning of the podcast, but I, I would, you know... If I was going to invent a, bi a biography for like an hour, I would probably have him act as a defensive master from like 1410 to 1440. 
um, and his students taking on, you know, in the aftermath of that, or during, I mean, even during his, his tenure, why not? But he was teaching the guys during that time who would go on to write the earliest fencing treatises. And that's my best guess, but that's utter speculation. We don't know nearly enough about any of this stuff to say for sure. Um, now the the author of this text, I know, without getting too deep into it, likes Latin, and they like yes. theory, and they like Aristotle, and showing that they're educated. And Ken- Kendra found something recently with regards to a quote, didn't she? Uh, in the, this is research from literally last night. Uh, it's not very the complete. Edge. The cutting edge. <laughs> um, I heard it the first time. But so there are a bunch of Latin phrases that appear throughout the text, and one of them is "apposita justa se posita magis elucescunt," which means opposite things placed next to each other shine more brightly, and this, I don't know, this has survived, this whole phrase has survived with a lot of evidence because it's a rhetorical technique for arguing things and comparing stuff. So it is now used by lawyers as well as, I guess, anyone who needs to explain opposite things. Um, it is often credited to Aristotle. What's interesting is that it's Latin and Aristotle didn't write in Latin. So... It's perhaps no surprise that those exact words don't appear in Aristotle's canon. Um, And the thing I found last night is that exact quote is how St. Bonaventure translates the Aristotle idea into Latin in his own writings, which are 13th century. Um, He is a... Bonaventure is a preeminent Franciscan theologian of the 13th century who likes to use this idea of contrasting opposites. Um, That is then... we Let me pause and back up all of that. (laughs) The Aristotle text that Bonaventure was translating seems to be Aristotle's Problemata, the curious thing there is that 3227A says what text this is quoting, and it's not problemata. It's something else. <laughs> Dodgy uh, scholarship. Right? Mostly this raises a lot of questions, because like the whole inclusion of Aristotle raises the question, what were German guys in the early 15th century reading to find out about Aristotle? Because the bulk of Aristotle's writings had not yet been re-imported from the Middle East. And this is just one more piece in that puzzle. So now we know there's this Franciscan theologian who was translating Aristotle into Latin, and maybe that's how the German guys read it. But maybe there are other roots too. I'm having a a quick cheeky Wikipedia read. And apparently 1434... uh, Saint Bonaventure uh, had his body moved to a a new a new church in the city of Lyon, and they all went. It was a miracle and wasn't rotted to bits, so they all went a little bit Saint Bonaventure mad. But it's it seems to me a little bit fitting that if people are reading up on this saint, that in the fourteen thirties there was almost like a cult of Bonaventure and Lyon is at the the west end of the Alps. Hmm. And had at least some serious fencing culture. I don't know about in the 1400s, but by the 1600s, they're hosting tournaments. Yep, I definitely. I, I think I posted on the, the Facebook page some rather funny quotes about Lyon and their the noble fencing master. <laughs> looking after the whorehouses such nobility thanks Kendra um, <laughs> sorry just sideways hailed that um, is there anything else that we'd like to add for this episode 
Uh, that's a good question. What were we going to talk about this episode? I don't think we quite finished our rundown of the manuscript contents, which we might want to just have for the record. Um, after the sword stuff, the other weapons that are covered would be sword and buckler, staff, messer, um, dagger, and grappling. And they're covered at extremely different lengths because of what I mentioned, where he would go in, he would write the first paragraph of each section, and then when he had a plan to come back and fill in more, and he only achieved that in some sections. So the certain buckler just says, whoever wants to fence with shield or the buckler must first know, and then stops. And the stab is one paragraph, <laughs> which he basically just describes the, the size of a stab and the virtues of a fighter. Um, whereas dagger and messer are several paragraphs, and the wrestling is a solid multiple pages, and that's the longest of the other one. The, uh, but none of them actually has nearly the complexity of the long-term teachings, since, you know, it's dealing up and it matters. And, but he also has this part where he quotes Lincoln Hour's Sable um, for the, the Tin Cannon Pony, but he has a weird rendition of it. So he doesn't give us, so he, he's, well, or, when everyone knows that his longsword Sable has a whole bunch of extra stuff in it. Um, and, but, his mount, but his mounted stuff does as well. And Jess Finley is one who cracked where a lot of this came from, where he took all of the mounted figures, which are this other weird poetic device that's included alongside the title in the mounted glasses. And he adds them in like they're, like they're regular mounted verses. So he sticks a bunch of those in, and he also takes a different poem about horse fighting that appears in the Yudlev um, tradition of manuscripts. And he adds that in, um, in intermixed with Lake Hours verses to make this sort of super horsey poem. Um, and then his tin can poem is just the standard Lake Hour one. There's not really any innovation there. But he adds these in and doesn't really leave enough space for a gloss, but he does leave a few pages, um, a few blank pages there. So it's not clear if he was planning to write just the world's shortest tin can and pony gloss or if he just had, like, more poems he wanted to stick in there. But he did leave a, a bit of blank space there um, that you can still see in the manuscript and never actually did more than write the verses down. And then outside of those martial teachings is where the scribe went on to record a whole bunch of other random shit. So a curious thing about other random shit... We've heard that a lot of this was copied from other sources. Um, I tried to do the same Googling pieces of Latin phrases to find where they're from on the spell for summoning a thousand knights, and none of them match up to anything. That could mean no one has ever transcribed that magic spell before, but it's... Interesting that a book that seems to be copied from very recognizable sources has a rare or original um, spell for summoning a thousand knights. But it's also it's also true that when you get into the realm of folk magical recipes, it's a, it's a whole it's very complicated in terms of determining origins of things. And I read some magical literature about this. That it's just by which I mean academic writing about magic, not just reading spell books. They've also done that. Um, but in the in the field of magic study, which is totally a legitimate field of academic inquiry, there is there's just so much variation that it's not like things where you can recognize classical sources and sort of recognize chains of copying. A lot of scholars end up kind of throwing up their hands and being like. I don't know where this came from. It's kind of like this one, but if it's if it was copied from this one and the person who copied it made a whole bunch of changes, so I don't know if they did. It's it's a, it's a much bigger problem than we see in venting literature, where things were usually copied from recognizable source. How many fencing sources are there for the fifteenth century? <clears throat> like less than yeah, there's like yeah. <laughs> Then I guess this is the definition of esotericism as well. Yeah, so it's 
it's interesting, but not really informative to find out that there's no recognizable tradition behind some of these magical recipes. Also, we haven't transcribed most of this manuscript. So Andre Vodka transcribed a few sections um, of the shorter magical stuff, but there's a whole bunch more in here. And yeah, some of this we can recognize sources to like Nibarignum, and a lot of it could be traditions that were so small they never actually got recorded anywhere. You know, all the copies of it got burned except for this one. Or it could be that the, I mean, for all I know, the person writing it was making up stuff as they went along. That's also a, a practice in magical culture. Why not? The, um, a lot of the spells language switch as well, don't they? They'll have Yeah, they mix German and Latin. Yeah, kind of like the, the physical instructions in German and then recite this bit of Latin, which is neat. So the... Uh... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't expect to find much um, overlap in the magical stuff. I mean, let's be honest, until Dear Pagadorn, how many people actually transcribed the venting parts of this manuscript either? Random magical formulae tend to be somewhat ignored by scholars who are processing manuscripts or by librarians who are prefer preparing descriptions of books in their collection. Sad, but true, that people just don't care about magical arts anymore. I don't know, my, uh, my dissertation supervisor at university was witchcraft and western esotericism <laughs> yeah. so that's where fencing falls into these days as well as in the middle ages well, if anyone's looking for a topic clearly this book is just waiting for an esoteric occult scholar to pick it up Wait, are you saying that you you did a dissertation on magic is that no. is that what i just heard <laughs> no hema but it's the same same Oh, okay. Oh. I've heard that wanting to sword fight from books is basically magic. <laughs> if you repeat these phrases, it has an effect on the real world. All right, we're getting into the weed. Uh, we were aiming for half an hour <laughs> for this episode, and it has been uh, an hour. So <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up here. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I've been your host, Mike Smorge, and joining us this week have been Michael Chidester and Kendra Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>